0: Hi, and welcome back to From Tits to Toes. I am Dr. Mikhail Rush, an OBGYN.
1: And I am Dr. Ann Sharkey, a podiatrist.
0: Welcome back.
1: Yes, welcome to the show, everyone.
0: So, you're still finishing up your uh, time in Miami?
1: Yeah, I, I like I said, I basically live here now. We're still here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we got to get you, your, get you your AARP card.
1: I feel that my, my knee qualifies actually in that characteristic. I probably could just go with it. <laughs> <laughs> Miami doesn't feel quite so geriatric.
0: Oh, that's true.
1: It's yeah, we're right downtown. So it's a little hip and trendy. Actually, I'm very casually dressed compared to many individuals here. I'm like, wow, I need less clothing and, and more bling, more accessories. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and As we, well, before the surgery, when we were at the VRBO pool, yeah, we are hanging out and my sister was chatting with this other lady she met and she said, oh, what are you here for? And my sister said, oh, I'm watching my niece. My sister's having surgery. And she goes, oh, she must be getting like the breast and boob lift that everyone comes to Miami for. And I was like, oh, (laughs) sadly, no,
0: no, no. (laughs) Just the knees, just the just knees, just the
1: knees, just a knee thing. No boobs, no butt <laughs> combo. But apparently, that's the popular reason for people to come here. So,
0: <laughs> and uh, Meredith has a new TV show favorite now.
1: Yes, she does. So, um, while I've been recovering, my sister has been monitoring her entertainment, and she introduced her to the show Shit's Creek. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, we educated her on what a pun is and that she's not allowed to say her favorite TV show is Schitt's Creek at school. <laughs> um, yep. But my seven-year-old now has watched the entire Schitt's Creek season. So, series, all? The whole, the whole series? series like all, all the seasons? Whatever, six seasons of it. I've caught bits and pieces of it. Um not... I don't watch TV really, but Meredith thinks it's hilarious. And for those of you who are fans, she fashions herself Alexis. And I now catch her like picking at her hair and having all these New York mannerisms that (laughs) the characters have.
0: Oh no. Have you watched it? Oh, we've watched all the seasons. Oh, okay.
1: Well then, you know, yeah. So Meredith, she loves all of it.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love that. That's her favorite TV show now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, but we've been, we've been having a good time, um, I've got, obviously, I read a book and I cleaned out 7,000 emails from my inbox. I don't even know how those accumulate, but they somehow get there. Damn. And well, it's like spam, right? Like you order something online, you get signed up on the email list. And so I, I not only yeah. deleted all these emails, but then I also unsubscribed from every random website I've ever subscribed to so that I can hopefully stop having so many because Gmail was like, we're going to cut you off on your email there's no more storage. <laughs> I was like, well, what happens then? Do you just like I don't know what happened? So I fixed that problem. Uh, so what is yet. what is
0: the number on your unread emails on your little notification? Well, so I've
1: read them all, like zero. I never you have opened them all? I open them all. And the thing is, like on my phone every day I delete them. But I guess it never like deleted them from the actual Google uh. app. And, and on my computer, which is an Apple, I use the mail app. And so yeah. all my Gmails filter in to there, and I delete it there every day, but it yeah. doesn't actually delete it from Google, I guess. So I had to go into the actual Google and then delete.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so
1: I learned a lesson. I'll still be working through it for a long time, but that's- well, I was
0: thinking the other day that, you know, like just ordering something on Amazon, you get the notification yeah. that it's ordered, the notification that it's shipped, the notification that it's on its way, the notification that it's arrived. And so every little thing you order, you end up getting a million emails. So I, I know. was thinking, I wonder how many Amazon emails I have in there. Cause I usually you don't should. open you those. type
1: Amazon into the search and look.
0: Oh, oh yeah. There's, I mean, thousands.
1: Thousands. So yeah.
0: I don't know. It, it's just T- it's so cumbersome to go it's through annoying. and Absolutely. take everything out. So
1: and then I'll I just, bring a picture I take on my phone, like backs up to Google Photos. So then that eats into my Google storage. Yep. And, but I don't. I'm not <laughs> gonna go through. I. You know how many dumb pictures I take every day? I'm not going through that. Yeah, so no, it's too much. I just paid a dollar ninety nine for a hundred gigabytes of storage. I that, <laughs> that was more worth my time than deleting photos. I'm like, you know what, Google, I'll give you a dollar ninety nine a month. Stop yeah, bothering I know.
0: I get those fandom uh, just reminders of like you. Here's Apple's charge for another yeah. gigabyte or whatever I got. Like, so.
1: Sure, sign me up. Yep. Put it in the cloud.
0: Well, on my phone, on my Gmail account, on my emails, Yeah. Um, when you look at the app, I have... 19,235 unread and unopened emails
1: (laughs) I can't do that, that gives me anxiety I cannot have no red dots on my phone, like they all have to go away I don't know, I can't and if if it's like an app that I don't care about I'll like go into the settings and turn the notifications off
0: yeah, I yeah, it totally doesn't bother me at all. Like I know, oh, okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. It just I sits couldn't.
0: there, which I know some people it drives them crazy, and so I will screenshot it sometimes and send it to those people just for fun. Yeah, but, I would, uh, I'm
1: having it problems drives problems them crazy right now, actually. Yeah, that. yeah. What's in those emails? You don't even know. Well, they're all like those notifications of shopping how do and you know and like. What if there's something important? What.
0: It's not, it's, all, it's 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 just a, you leave it in there for like, okay, here's a confirmation of whatever. You just sure. leave it in there, you don't need to open it. Well, I just leave I'm,
1: it in there. My other bad habit is I will like flag emails in Gmail, like I'm gonna come back to that. And then I looked at my flagged email status and I have 227 flagged emails, like probably something actually that I should have responded to. yeah But I'm like, oh, I'll just deal with that later.
0: I don't so. even flag anything, I don't think, I, I just. I either read them you know or what? I've ignore come
1: them. To it in life where if someone really needs something, they'll get in touch with you.
0: Yeah. Can you see here? I'll show you on the Zoom. Can you see my? Yeah. <laughs> Nineteen thousand two hundred and thirty-four. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I was like, oh, let's see. Zero. Is your zero? No yeah. way. None. No way. There's no there's way. But now I'm so far behind, there's no way I can catch up, so it doesn't oh, matter.
1: You need to have surgery. See? So you have surgery, and you just lay in bed, and then you click uh-huh. on your computer all day long.
0: No, I'm sure I would just um, play on TikTok and Instagram all would day watch long. I'd
1: watch Schitt's
0: Creek. I'd, I'd watch Schitt's Creek, yeah. I would sit with Meredith and would watch yeah. Schitt's Creek all day long. Yeah.
1: yeah, I talked to Tom on the phone tonight, so he's at home with the dogs. He stayed home to manage that situation. And um, yeah. I was like, oh, I have a new idea. I'm going to like take courses and get a certificate in lifestyle medicine so that I can better educate my diabetic patients. And he's like, that's yeah. the best you could come up with with 10 days off of work was to go do more school. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I have a problem.
0: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by the time you get back, you're gonna be so busy, you won't even be able to think about it.
1: No, I told them that's so why I was like, just go with it. It's just a thing that's in my head right now, and I'll forget about it like five days from right this minute. But my brain is OCD, and I can't settle down.
0: That's well, probably like when we came up with a podcast idea too.
1: What have you been up to this week?
0: Oh, just working. Uh, about to leave for a trip to Nashville, so. So automatically uh,
1: that makes work crazy.
0: Yeah. So and then you try to tidy everything up and get everything signed off and done and. And packing and everything, so yeah. I've been packing the boys and just trying to get it all together. So I think nice also
1: seat. you were very excited about getting some Papsmere wands or something. Oh
0: yeah, <laughs> I saw we that were before. almost out. Like, oh, okay, we were in DEFCON, and we've been begging, begging, begging to get more of those brooms. Okay. And yeah. then they finally arrived and we were all so excited. It was really sad and pathetic, but we were so excited.
1: We this is really what COVID sick. does to us. We're excited for small things like, yay, yeah. the gloves arrived because what, what were we gonna do, right?
0: Right. I mean, I was like, well, I can't do pep smears without the broom or the brush, so you have to have it. So you
1: Can't just use yeah. a Q-tip or something?
0: Yeah, no, you can't. Can I, I mean, you have it? to have something that's specific for it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, I know the that's eyelash, the girls- like a mascara wand? Right? I know the girls in the office were like, can we use these other things? And they would like show me all these things. I'm like, no, that's not approved to collect a pap smear. You got to be yeah. able to actually collect the proper cells to sure. send off. Otherwise, you could miss it and then you could sure, miss. Right.
1: And then it would be an, an abnormal test and that would be terrible.
0: Right. Yeah. So I was like, no, I have to have the brooms. So <laughs> all right. Well, I'm glad, you,
1: I'm glad you got your brooms.
0: Yes, me too. <laughs> All so right. last,
1: last week we talked about ankle sprains and this week, Dr. Rush is going to share with us the history of
0: cesarean sections. Woo.
1: This is very interesting. I'm sure I can't yeah. imagine the first person who had this tried on them. So yeah, let's dive in.
0: Let's go in. All right. right. Okay, so this is gonna be the history of C sections or cesarean sections. I got most of this information online from the NIH actually. It was called a C section, a brief history. It was a brochure that accompanied an ex- exhibition that they had on the history of C sections at the National Library of Medicine in nineteen ninety three. So was
1: super cool. Was, okay. Yeah,
0: yeah. So it was a pretty thorough Uh, rundown of everything. So that's why I'm just using this as my source because it's a pretty thorough. So yeah. So I figured I would start with just what is a C-section definition. So a C-section or cesarean is a delivery of a baby through an incision made in the mother's abdomen and the uterus. Now, reasons for this can vary, but today reasons are failure to progress like failure to dilate, or if you're complete and you're pushing and baby doesn't fit through, failure to descend, things like that. Um, non-reassuring fetal status, so if the baby's heart rate's down or baby's not tolerating labor. If you have multiples, so they can all be in different positions. So multiples is a reason to be able to do it. If there's a problem with the placenta, whether you have a like a placenta previa okay. or an accreta, increta, percreta, whatever, problems with the placenta may indicate one. If you have an excessively large baby, which is like usually 10 pounds or more or something like that, we can recommend one. Malpresentation, so breech or transverse, those types of things, we would um, recommend a C-section as well. And uh, other certain infections like her- herpes simplex virus or HIV, some of those we do it for. And then also other indications like eclampsia, which is seizures okay. from high blood pressure, Uh, preeclampsia with an unfavorable cervix, like severe preeclampsia or certain types of preeclampsia where you've got to hurry and deliver the baby, like help syndrome, things like that. So there are indications to deliver a baby, which are different than what they used to be back in the day. All right. So going way, way, way back. The question is, when did it all start? When was the first one? Well, that's a bit hard to tell. It's been a part of culture in ancient times for a while. Both Western and non Western cultures. So there's Greek mythology, kind of a theory where um, Apollo removed Asclepius. I don't know. I'm going to butcher every name. You know, okay. I, I don't do Latin. Sure. So, and then from the mother's abdomen was a theory or like a, a Greek myth. Um, there's numerous references to a Caesarean section um, in ancient Hindu, Egyptian, Grecian, Roman, and other e- European folklore. There's also ancient Chinese etchings that depict the procedure on an apparently living woman. That's fascinating. Yeah. So what we have to understand way, way, way back, this procedure was really only done to remove the baby either from a, a dead or dying mother. Okay. So it was either used to try and save the baby from a dead or dying mother, or if the mother had already passed, sometimes they would do this to remove the baby, to bury the baby separately, or also to baptize the baby. So they would need to remove the baby from the womb to be able to do that. So most of the time, way back then, it was done either in an emergent situation where mother was dying and they're trying to save the baby, or... It was post-mortem, and they were just trying to... Um, so both the
1: mother and the baby had already passed, and it was for burial right. purposes. Okay.
0: So there's also an, a story for origin-wise of the Caesarean that's been kind of distor- distorted over time, but there was this common belief that it uh, was the surgical birth of Julius Caesar. However, I think they've kind of debunked that. Um, it seems unlikely only because um, his mother, Aurelia, uh, is reputed to have lived to hear her son's invasion of Britain, and so if that's the case, then she likely didn't have a cesarean section because it really wasn't done uh, back then to help preserve the mother's life. Most of them didn't survive that type of surgery at that time. You know, it was always done on women that were dead or dying, so or post mortem. So now, when it comes right. to the they need- didn't
1: exactly have anesthesia.
0: No, yeah, and then we're gonna talk about that too. That was part of the evolution as well. So this it used to be called cesarean operation. And that changed um, later on to the word section. So back in 1598, there was a book on midwifery by Jacques Guillemot. I don't know. I'm just going to make up words. Okay. Um, that actually introduced the term section. So thereafter, that's where they kind of started saying cesarean section instead of cesarean operation.
1: What does the word cesarean even
0: mean? It's- well,
1: and that's, that's part of
0: like where did it come from? What's the root of it? So okay. let me see. I do have something on it here. So there are some other origins, like um, there's Latin origin, origins, including the verb cader, C-A-E-D-A-R-E, uh, meaning to cut, and the term um, which is applied to infants born by post-mortem operations. So okay. they're thinking it's probably originating from those root words. Okay. But yeah, everyone always thinks it was Julius Caesar. and Yeah. Um, so okay, I don't think interesting. that's perhaps true which i i actually uh, thought like that was you know that was like a stories passed down i was like oh yeah julius caesar all right so one of the first written maybe the first written but this is kind of what we can track maybe one of the first written records we have of a mother and a baby surviving a cesarean section comes from switzerland in the 1500s wow. um there was uh basically a farmer who performed the operation on his wife so farmers are probably better at it. They tend to know more anatomy and that sort sure. of thing. So, yeah. um, especially if they're birthing like other animals, if they're yeah. helping to birth other animals. So they tend to know a little bit more about anatomy. But yeah, so it's, like, let's see. The theory was- these
1: Medical crisis situations because they've managed right? it. Yeah. So he's yeah. like, I'm going to save my wife and my baby.
0: So in that documentation, what they- what they think from the documentation is that the mother lived and sub- subsequently gave birth normally to five children, including twins. And they think that the cesarean baby lived to be about 77 years old. Yeah. So interesting. Anyway. Yeah. So very cool. Many of the earliest successful C-sections took place in remote rural areas, kind of like this guy, the farmer guy. And most of them were, they were basically lacking in medical facilities and staff because of the, the more rural areas. There's not a lot of strong medical communities, sure. so the operations could be carried out without professional consultation, which meant the cesareans could be undertaken at an earlier stage of failing labor and basically not near death, right? So it's like a, an earlier chance to be yeah. able to save the mom and the baby. Um, and the baby be less distressed as well. Under those circumstances, the chance of one or both surviving were a lot better. So if you can catch it earlier, before the baby's compromised or before mom's lost too much blood or whatever, you can actually potentially save the mom or the baby or both. These operations were typically performed on kitchen tables and beds uh, without access to any hospital facilities. This was probably an advantage until the late 19th century. Surgery in hospitals, were they were more... Infectious, right so we didn't know about infections at that time, and so infections could be passed between patients by often unclean hands of the medical attendants, so they didn't know at the time about washing hands and it was everything. actually
1: so, safer to have it at home.
0: It was actually safer to have it at home or out in rural areas where they didn't yeah. have access to the medical okay. population or hospitals sure. or large facilities let's see by the eighteenth and early nineteenth century, anatomists and surgeons substantially extended their knowledge of the normal and pathology anatomy of the human body. So that helped, that education helped. By the later 1800s, there was a greater access to human cadavers. And so the, the, there was changes in medical education and medical school at the time. So it permitted medical students to learn anatomy through personal dissection. So that's when they started doing dissections and cadavers and be able to learn the full anatomy. So that also helped. Practical experience improved their understanding and better prepared them to undertake operations for later. And at that time, of course, this new type of medical education was still only available to men and not to women yet. So in Western society, women, for the most part, were barred from carrying out any cesarean sections until the late 19th century um, because they were largely denied admission to medical schools. So they weren't able to be actually um, taught how to do them if they weren't in the school. The first recorded successful cesarean in the British Empire, however, was conducted by a woman sometime between 1815 and 1821. Name of James Miranda Stewart Barry performed the operation while masquerading as a man and serving as a physician to the British Army in South Africa. So, cool fact.
1: <laughs> right, of course, yes.
0: Right. Let's see. So, Barry, so last name was Barry, applied Western surgical techniques. And then the 19th century travelers in Africa also reported instances of the indigenous people successfully carrying out the procedure with their own medical practices. In 1879, for example, there was a British traveler, last name Falcon, who witnessed a cesarean section performed by Ugandans. The healer used banana wine to semi-intoxicate the woman and to cleanse his hands and her abdomen prior to surgery. He also used a midline incision and applied some cautery to to minimize the um, bleeding and the hemorrhaging. He massaged the uterus afterwards to make it contract down, but he did not suture it. The Abdominal wound was pinned with iron needles and then dressed with a paste prepared from roots. The patient recovered well, and then Falcon concluded that this technique was well-developed and had clearly been employed for a long time. And there were similar reports coming from Rwanda where botanical preparations were also used to anesthetize the patient and promote wound healing. So Interesting. Wow. I know. They were kind of like farther ahead than we all were at the time, probably. Which I think that's interesting. Very. Um, it was only with the increased urbanization and the growth of hospitals that the operation began to be performed more routinely. So most rural births continued to be attended by midwives in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But in the cities, obstetrics, which was a more of a hospital-based specialty, kind of squeezed out the midwifery. So midwives tended to help the ones that stayed at home. And then you had the OBs that kind of took over the hospital and the more... Uh, the medical facilities in urban centers. Large numbers of uprooted working class women gave birth in hospitals because they could not rely on the support of family and friends as they could in the countryside. So, because they were in the urban areas, they didn't have the countryside like the family and that support. So, they kind of all had to deliver in hospitals. It was in these hospitals where the doctors treated many patients with similar condition, and in that, the new OB and surgical skills began to be more developed. So. As a serious abdominal operation, the development of the C-section both sustained and reflected changes within general surgery as well. So it's all, they're all operations, so it all kind of develops at the same time. In the early 1800s, when surgery still relied on age-old techniques, its practitioners were dreaded and viewed by the public as little better than barbers, butchers, and teeth pullers. So nobody had respect (laughs) for anyone. No, no. Although many surgeons possessed the anatomical knowledge and the courage to perform serious procedures, they had been limited by the patient's pain and the problems of infection. So well into the 1800s, surgeries continued to be more barbarous and um, reckless and crazy. Can you
1: imagine doing surgery on someone who's largely conscious and like writhing in agony? Right, exactly.
0: Well, and that's what they said. They said, so the best surgeons were really were the ones that were known for the speed at which they could amputate a limb or suture a wound sure. because they're not If you don't have anesthesia, you got to hurry and get it done. Right. Yeah. So yikes. Oh my gosh. Okay, so those are the good that. ones, the ones that were super, super fast. So then during the 19th century, however, that surgery was transforming technically and professionally, there is a new era in surgical practice. And then In Massachusetts, in 1846, at Massachusetts General Hospital, the dentist William T.J. Morton used diethyl ether while removing a facial tumor. So this application of anesthesia started rapidly spreading and went over to Europe as well. And then at that time, the head of the Church of England, Queen Victoria, had chloroform administered for the births of her two children. Subsequently, anesthesia and childbirth became more popular among the wealthy, and then impractical in, in cases of cesarean sections. So that's when it started to become more and more popular. Because originally, the church kind of said no. So initially, there was uh, opposition by the church. And so um, there was this kind of a debate until the Queen of England actually used it. And then it was
1: like, oh, okay, well, now it's fine. So then everyone well, right. can use if the it. Queen, if the Queen can do it,
0: then. If well, the Queen can do it, we can do it. Exactly. Well, she was the head of
1: the church, right? So
0: right? She's the head. So she, whatever she says goes, right? Yeah. Um, so dangerous as it was, the cesarean section may have seemed preferable in some in- instances when the fetus was trapped high in the pelvis um, where pelvic distortion or contraction existed and it's difficult to get to use forceps. So um, they started to realize like, Hey, the baby's stuck up there and can't come out and we can't get out with forceps or we're going to, you know, basically cause a lot of damage by using forceps. So, uh, sometimes the cesarean section was the only out that they had. Sure. So, so that's when they started using it a little bit more often. So while doctors and patients were encouraged by anesthesia to resort to a cesarean section rather than um, trying to remove the baby vaginally, the mortality rates for the operation remained high because of infections. There's a large percentage of post-operative deaths because of infection. So prior to the establishment of the whole germ theory of disease and the birth of modern bacteriology, that was at the second half of the 19th century, surgeons wore their street clothes to operate in. And they just washed their hands infrequently, passed germs from one patient to another. So in the mid-1860s, the British surgeon, Joseph Lister, Mm -hmm. introduced an antiseptic method using carbolic acid. And many operators adopted part of that antisepsis technique. So that's where we kind of get into the whole washing hands, you know, asepsis, that sort of thing. So unfortunately, surgical techniques um, of that day also contributed to appalling high maternal morbidity rates because they didn't know what they were doing yet. So it's just it's one of those things that just develops over time. You get better and better. So surgeons were afraid to suture the uterine incision closed because they thought internal stitches, which could not be removed, would be a setup for an infection and so and caused maybe a rupture of the uterus later on in subsequent pregnancies. So they thought that just leaving the muscles of the uterus uh, open that it would contract down on itself and close itself in um, and then heal itself, Um, but that's not how it works. And so most of those people would die of blood loss um, or infection. So until the techniques were evolved, it's, it's kind of hit or miss, like, are they going to survive or not? Yeah. But if you don't close the wound, it just keeps bleeding. So some things you can kind of leave open and it heals naturally, but yeah, not the uterus you got to kind of close the uterus going to help stop the bleeding. So once anesthesia, antisepsis, and asepsis were finally established, OBs were able to, you know, employ their techniques and kind of figure out techniques and skills and figure out the cesarean section a little bit better. For uterine sutures, they finally figured that out. There's a 19th century gynecologist, J. Marion Sims. So Sims had invented his sutures to treat vaginal tears, like for fistulas that would result from like the traumatic births and forceps. So he kind of invented this silver suture. So that started to be used and was popular. So that helped to close wounds. Um, so decreased bleeding and decreased infection. And then as cesarean sections became safer, OBs increasingly argued against delaying surgery. So rather than waiting many, many hours of unsuccessful labor, if you do the C-section sooner, you have better outcomes and save more lives. So that new approach also assisted in reducing maternal and perinatal infant mortality rates. Then between 1880 and 1925, OBs experimented with different types of incisions on the uterus. So there's the vertical incision, like through the main muscle, like all the way through, like up and down. And then there's the low transverse incision, which is in the non-contracting portion of the uterus on the lower end, on that lower part. So they started practicing and experimenting with those types of incisions. So basically it's been refined where that lower transverse uterine incision was thought to be more ideal and it has a lower risk of rupture later for the subsequent pregnancy after that.
1: So, was there a period of time where if someone had a vertical incision and they had one C section, was it recommended they not have additional pregnancies?
0: Well, in this day and age, with a vertical C section scar, like an a up and down incision in the muscle of the uterus, you can get pregnant again. It's just not recommended to try a vaginal birth after okay. a C section. It's just recommended to have a repeat C section. And
1: why yeah. would someone right now have a vertical incision, like significant emergency, or, you know, why would? Would you choose that, or is that not even happen anymore?
0: Yeah, no, it, it does happen occasionally. It's rare. Sometimes it's the gestational age. If the if you're not far enough along, sometimes it's the only way to get in. Okay. Um, there are some instances where we would have to do an up and down vertical incision, but it's not common okay. this day and age. It's not common. Okay. Yeah. So now we're getting to antibiotics. So penicillin was discovered by Alexander Fleming in 1928. And after it was purified as a drug in 1940, it became generally available everywhere. And it dramatically reduced morbidity, mortality of mom and baby during C-sections. And so that actually helped push like so antibiotics helped to decrease those infection rates, improved outcomes. Everybody was happy. And then as the rate of urbanization rapidly increased in Britain, throughout Europe and the U.S. at the turn of the century, we needed an increased need for C-sections. Now, this was interesting. So because people were urbanized and less people were out in the country, they were exposed to little sunlight. So city children or children that were born and raised in the city experienced a sharply elevated rate of, the, of nutritional diseased rickets. So in the way that this carries over is because in women who improper bone growth had resulted, they had malformed pelvices and then often prohibited normal delivery. So it all kind of goes hand in hand, like they started living in more in the cities and then they didn't have as much sunlight and then they had a malformed pelvis because they got rickets and then they couldn't push a baby out and it just, it was crazy. Yeah. But then at this time you have the urbanization, you have all the hospitals that are getting better at these techniques and then we have the cesarean section. So now we're able to actually get the babies out safely, which helps. So by 1938, approximately half of U.S. births were taking place in hospitals And by 1955, it had risen to almost 99%, which is crazy. So by 1955, almost everybody was delivering. It's crazy to think
1: that, like, in the 50s, that's just when it reached that number. Yeah. That's not that long ago.
0: No, I know. It's crazy. Now, anyone who watches, like, Call the Midwife, I find it so a lot of this kind of, you can kind of see a lot of these things in Call the Midwife, how they, you know, they were in the city and uh, they would go around and help deliver the moms that were in the city, but trying to birth at home. And then at that point, they did have cesarean sections that you can kind of follow. If you follow that series, you can kind of follow it along where they get some anesthesia and they start offering it. They have the ability to do C-sections and they bring them into the hospital. So you can kind of see it evolve a little bit in that show, which I kind of like. Um, So it's kind of cool. Wow. So around the same time period as the increased re- like mid-century. So in 1955, around that time, there were advances in anesthesia, which helped improve safety and experiences of a C-section. So then we introduced spinals and epidurals. So this was around that time. And it helps alleviate pain and you know during childbirth. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have to do the gas and expose babies. Sure. So that was nice. And it also allowed women to remain conscious during a C-section versus having to put them under in general anesthesia. So that was nice. And you get immediate bonding, all of that. So there, it's nice when they can stay awake. So in the U.S., almost one quarter of babies are now delivered by C-section now, at A's. So if you look back, the, comparing in 1970, the C-section rate was about 5%. By 1988, it had peaked at 24.7%. Yeah. Yeah. And then in 1990, it had decreased slightly to like 23.5. It's still about a quarter at this point. Okay. So this was all from that one at the beginning. I said it was from that exhibition that was like 1993 or something. So yeah. Um, this was the data at that time, but okay. it's still about a quarter, like not 25-ish percent. Okay. But now, it but at that time it had dropped a little bit because that's when they started introducing vaginal birth after cesarean section, which okay. is where you can attempt a mm-hmm. v or a delivery vaginally after you've had a C-section. So that's, there was a big push for that. So that kind of helped drop the numbers a little bit. So other factors that contributed to the rapid rise in cesarean sections, this was interesting. There was technological advances, some were cultural issues, some were professional, others were legal issues. So the growth, the growth in malpractice suits no doubt promoted surgical intervention, but there were lots of different influences, but uh, there's a lot of theories that say that because of malpractice suits rising so rapidly that doctors were more likely to do C-sections than they were in the past and that they think that's why the number rose a little bit, which, I mean, I don't think I don't think that's all necessarily 100% true, but which is interesting. Um, it probably factors
1: in a little that bit. The complication risk following a surgery would be higher, so you'd have a higher risk of having litigation following C-section, which would lead people to be more conservative on that.
0: No, it's more of people were calling C-sections more often because they were trying to save the baby and not have an issue and be sued. Okay. So if the baby was, had lack of oxygen and you were like, they, if you could have gotten the baby out sooner, maybe the baby would have been fine. Or, you know, you let, you waited too long and you could have gotten the baby out sooner. So because of litigation,
1: they did that. Okay.
0: Right. So because of litigation, people are scared to, if the strip looks bad or if she's pushing and nothing's happening, like better to do it now than have yeah. something bad happen or have a bad outcome with the baby and then get sued for it later. Right. Yeah. So, so it probably factors in a little bit, but um, yeah, I found that interesting
1: too. That was very interesting.
0: Yeah. So also what another technological advance that evolved was also ultrasound. And so there's another part of this article that was interesting that once we had ultrasound and all these other technology advances, such as like nowadays we have NIPT testing, which is testing the minute amounts of fetal DNA in the bloodstream to test for genetic disorders. But you, you can also test for gender early. Ultrasound can look at gender early. So people were finding out genders early, early on and bonding with their babies early on, calling, they're already naming them. And so there's a different approach when you in a world where everybody, they know the name and they call it by the name and you're talking to it it's a, it's a person versus before nobody knew what they were having. They yeah. weren't as connected to the baby. And so it's this big, you know, um, it's just a lot different now. And so everyone feels more connected. And there's this, there's a part of this article that was just interesting, but they termed it, there's changes in the emotional and financial investment, both medical practitioners and expectant parents have in a fetus. So the, all of that has changed over time. So, that kind of plays into the role of when to do a C section. And then, also with the invention of the heart monitors that we put on the belly to monitor the fetal heart rate, uh, before we didn't have that. So, now that we have it, we can watch the heart rate. So, now that we can watch it more, we can see when it dips down more. We can see when baby's in distress. So, we can call a C section sooner if we know the baby's in distress. When before all they could do was listen to it and they could kind of guess and try to think if they could tell. Yeah. Otherwise it's hard to tell. You just kind of listen to it. You can hear it when it's obviously down and the baby's down, but it's you can't see like decelerations that come back up. But you can definitely tell when the baby's like down, you know? When
1: Mm -hmm. the baby should
0: be in the one forties, but it's down in the eighties, then that's a problem. Okay. So nowadays, there's actually a more of a rise of vaginal birth after cesarean sections or at least trying to labor and try vaginal birth after C-section, which is nice. So that's helping to decrease C-section rates overall. But there is a big push for a trial of labors or tolax, um for a vaginal birth after cesarean. So basically recapping, the original intent of this surgery was mainly for a dead or dying fetus. Usually the mother was postmortem. But in our society now, women may be afraid of the pain of childbirth, but they do not expect it to kill them like back then. So they're not as afraid of labor as back in the day, there was a high mortality rate. Like a lot of women didn't survive labor. And so nowadays with the advances in C-section, we know we can save a mom and a baby a lot faster. Some people aren't as um, afraid to go into labor and have deliveries. Most women expect their babies to survive birth. So um, that helps. So, yeah. So that's uh, the history of a C-section, everything you probably never needed to know about a C-section.
1: It's fascinating, though, how far we've come in such a short period of time, really.
0: Right. The biggest evolution has just been this past like 100 years. Mm -hmm. It's
1: crazy. Yeah, that's wild. I think Mm -hmm. when our grandparents were born, it was not a common thing.
0: No, definitely not. Yeah. And it's definitely much more common now. But it's saving a lot more babies and a lot more moms. Right, you know, there's, right. Moms aren't afraid to go into labor because they're not afraid. They don't no. think they're going to die. And, you, you know, there's you not a high mortality are,
1: rate. Like that you're going to give birth and pass away. It's just not, you know, it's not a thought that crosses your mind generally. So.
0: I know. It was really survival of the fittest back then because, I mean, if you didn't survive, you know, the baby may have lived, may not, but you didn't go on to procreate anymore. So there's this lineage of, okay, the ones that were able to survive childbirth had babies and maybe those genetics and that pelvis then was passed down. And so yeah. you can still um, try to deliver. But yeah, it was interesting uh, how it evolved over time and genetics. And like, it doesn't matter what your shape of your pelvis is anymore. We can still get the baby out of right. the C-section yeah. if we have to.
1: It's wild yeah. and crazy. Well, thank you wild for sharing and crazy. that
0: with us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So probably way more dates and uh, stuffy dates and info than we ever needed to know. But I That's found right. it kind
1: of fascinating anyway. We won't have a test. So it's just for. Oh, no,
0: there's going to be a test.
1: Oh, on Instagram. <laughs> okay, we'll make sticker polls. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, we can totally make a test. We Who, like attention? We Who wrote away.
0: down the dates? Right. Come on.
1: Yeah. All right.
0: Perfect. That's it for today. Thanks again for tuning in. We have been loving all the feedback and the questions that we are receiving. So just keep
1: them coming. Don't forget, if you want to leave a voice message, just go to the link at the bottom of the description in the episode. You may even hear your question or comment here on the show. And remember to subscribe so you'll be the first to know every time we release a new episode. We are
0: so grateful for all of the downloads, rates, and reviews. These help to drive our podcast
1: up in the rankings and makes it easier for others to find us. Do you have an interesting idea or a question that you want answered here on the podcast? Send us an email at tits 2 podcast at gmail.com or message us on Instagram at from tits2toes. To and remember, keep your tits up and your toes down.